Tom Meadows just seems to get great pop gigs. From sitting at the back of the stage with Kylie Minogue, playing to thousands of people, to touring with Girls Aloud, Duffy and Will Young, as well as many other artists, Tom has been there, done it, and filled a wardrobe with t-shirts. Tom describes himself as an electronics Luddite, but necessity and artist requirements has meant that he has become one of the go-to acoustic electronic drummers in contemporary pop. But Tom is no pure electronics head. He just uses the tools to get the job done to the best of his ability. If that's electronics, then great. But if it's just playing a vintage Ludwig kit, then that's absolutely fine too. Tom is no one-trick pony either. As well as pop, he can be found on 100,000 selling big band albums or playing cajon in an acoustic setting. I've had the pleasure of working with Tom in his electronics rig for quite a few years now, so he was always going to be one of my first podcast subjects. For more information about Tom, go to tommeadows.co.uk. You're listening to the eDrumInfo.com podcast, making your experience with electronic drums that much easier. Hello, Tom. How are you? Very good, thank you. Very good. Drinking tea, something better. Great. Right. You are the subject of this podcast, and the reason I wanted you here was, as far as I'm concerned, you are a highly influential electronics user. And by that I mean uh, when you are doing a big tour, like a Kylie tour or something like that, you are playing to hundreds of thousands of people. Yes. So you are approaching um, electronic drums from a different point of view to a lot of people. You are doing it in the real world. You are doing it uh, not for magazines. You're not doing it for companies. You're not uh, trying to impress anyone on a YouTube video. You are actually doing it. But to go back to the beginning, and I know this crops up in every single interview you ever do, it's right that you started on violin, not drums. Yes, I did. Yes, I did. Uh, which is Which is why... Uh, well, I think it's it's where my ob- obsession with melody comes from. I think it's where my obsession actually with with strings uh, on on records come from. I think who who we are uh, influences how we play and what we play. And I think for me, the fact that I spent well, I was never really good enough uh, to be in the first violin chair. So the fact that I spent most of my string playing career in the second violins. Uh, gave me an idea of the importance of the supporting role. And in fact, one conductor uh, in an orchestra that, that I was in uh, said to me, or said to us, actually, when we uh, magnificently screwed something up, why is it uh, the second violins always have the most important notes? And I thought that was quite interesting um, and probably goes some way uh, to explain why I play the drums as opposed to why I maybe gravitated towards, you know, guitar or, or something else a little bit more sort of um, front and center. But I, I quite enjoy the support aspect. I quite enjoy the fact that, you know, in, in terms of a, a modern band, you know, the band is only as strong as its drummer because that's, that's, that's the foundation. It's the foundation of the house in essence. So what actually persuaded you to move over to drums? <laughs> there's, there's an answer which I won't talk about. Um, but actually what, what happened, and, and this is true, this is genuinely, genuinely true. My music teacher dropped a timpani onto my antique violin. My, my my grandmother, my maternal grandmother was an antiques dealer and she found this violin, which was about 200 years old at the time. And when we used to bring our instruments in, we used to put them by a certain uh, wardrobe. And on top of this, this wardrobe were the two orchestral timpanies. And something happened, she opened the door, timpani came down, smashed on the violin. And with the insurance money, I bought my very first drum kit. To be honest, proves my point of everything happens for a reason. And that, that is, 
God's honest truth, that did happen. Uh, so when did you decide to actually sort of get into playing full time? When did you know that that was what you were going to do? So drumming, not that I, I necessarily make it look that way right now, but drumming always came easy to me. And, there, you know, there are some things in life which you you sort of understand innately. And, and, and drumming to me was something that I understood. I understood for some reason song form. I understood uh, the coordination aspects of it. I understood the idea of, you know, maybe uh, playing something for a verse, something for a chorus. That's not to say that I was very good from the start, but I understood it. Um, and something happened, you know, al along the way. I'd been playing for probably, I don't know, six or seven years. And I was in a band. I loved it. And I got fired from that band. And it was that rug being pulled from under my feet that made me realize that you actually can't coast on natural ability. Um, that's when I started to go and study. And, you know, so it's, 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 it's the combination of studying and natural ability that will get you to where you want to be. But in terms of when I made a choice, well, I think when, once I got my hands on my first drum kit and started playing, I don't think there was any looking back to be honest that th this was all i was going to do so presumably i mean you're you are a londoner anyway aren't you so it wasn't like you had to do the big move down to london or anything else so you're already working you started working in bands around london and everything else well i yeah i mean i was really lucky i mean i i think now um uh younger people whether they live in london or or, or not i think it, it's a real struggle to find places to play um, I think it's gotten easier now that the um, the licensing laws have been slightly changed and re and repealed. But, you know, when I was 15, 16, 17, I was playing in all of the pubs and clubs around London, um, around my area. Um, unfortunately, during the licensing period where, uh, just to clarify, if you had more than two people playing, you had to apply for a license. So that just meant a lot of uh, venues stopped live music um, or just went with two people, which obviously took me out of the picture as a drummer. But a lot of those venues that stopped having live music became sort of gastro pubs. And the idea of entertainment was became irrelevant. Um, and, you know, they, they focused on food and, and fine wines. So a lot of the places that I played in around North, North London you know just don't exist anymore so you know i've no idea where any young people uh will find a place to play and learn their craft you know um i complain about a lot of things in terms of you know the talent shows on tv and stuff and people not learning their craft and just going straight out and having a record deal but actually if i think about it where are they going to learn their craft where where are they going to do what you and i did you know yeah uh, uh, and learn how to play to an audience that just does not care um, and win them round. Um, so yeah, but my 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 youth was spent yeah in 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 the pubs and clubs around London town. So I, I was lucky in in that sense, definitely. Okay, and I'm leaping forward a bit here. But what was your first exposure to electronics? Why? I mean, because now you're one of the one of your uh, many strings to your bow is electronics. Um, how did that come about? Was there one particular thing that made you go, I need to do that? I I always really. I always really liked it. And I'll be honest, in the initial instances, I really enjoyed the aesthetic. Mm. Um, so again, 
when I was much younger, the early pioneers in this country, people like Andy Gangadine, people like Pete Lewinson um, when he was playing with Sade, and uh, I think they shared Massive Attack for a while. People like, actually, Ian Thomas, funnily enough, who is not known necessarily for being an electronics person. But when I saw him play with Seal in 1992 or three, he had his DW rig uh, with uh, a D drum. Uh, 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 it was the D drum. It looked like a like a cat. I, I mean, it was like a controller thing. And he had the the big old cast uh, D drum pads, um, and he was playing electronics. Um, and I just really enjoyed the aesthetic of blending. Uh, I'm sure we'll talk about this a lot because it's become um, such a cliche now. But the hybrid nature of acoustic drums and electronic drums. Just on that point, I know that you know when we first started talking about electronics and I use the word hybrid kit, I actually don't agree with the word hybrid now because in essence, they're just sound sources. So a drum is a drum. Uh, it, it makes a sound. Um, the, the electronic drum makes a sound in, in the same way. It's just connected to another source. You know, just coming back to uh, Ian Thomas, just what you were saying yeah. about Ian Thomas, he's actually been much more influential than I think he realizes. He did tubular bells too, I think it was, and and he had a, a D drum rig with real cymbals, and it sounded phenomenal. And that was, in my head, that was one of the turning points. But anyway, sorry, let's go back. Absolutely, well, no, but but I think I think now uh, we've just to digress briefly, we've come to a point where. People do things because they think they should. Where actually, if you if I think about Andy Gangadine or Pete Lewinson with Massive Attack or Ian Thomas with uh, Seal, they simply did what they had to do in order to, to get the job done. And if I fast forward in terms of what I've been doing over the last eight or nine years, I only did it because I had to. Whereas now, I think people will walk into a rehearsal room or an audition with this stuff already set up because they feel that that is what is required of them. In some ways it may not be. And actually I've done a couple of things recently, Will Young being one of them, where I really enjoyed just playing drums again. I've, I've, I've had to relearn how to play drums. I know we've talked about this before, but you know, the idea of, you know, playing drum fills and, you know, being responsible for my own sounds rather than programming them. But I think it's, it, it's important, no matter what your reputation, no matter what your stereotype, uh, it's important to remember that actually what we do is simply we, we make music, we play drums. So whatever it takes to get the, the right message across it is, is what we should be doing. Anyway, so going back to it. So the, the aesthetic was what I really enjoyed. I, I, I loved the visual. And the turning point for me, I, I know exactly when it was. Um, I was doing some teacher training at a school, and I, and I went into a class that was being taught by our friend Mark Roberts, mm-hmm. um, who became very influential uh, in my in my life. And he was teaching a class contemporary styles, and basically that class was all about triggering uh, using le- electronics. Yeah. Um, and I quietly walked into the back of the room. I sat down. And he was showing how to attach, uh, well, at that time, it was a D-drum trigger to a bass drum and a snare drum. And he had it going through the PA. And he played 
and my mind was blown. That was it. From that from that point, I wanted to be a part of it. Unfortunately, that was also the point at which I realized it's a never ending money pit and uh, uh, journey. Things are always changing. There's always, you know, especially in those days, in those days where um, my phone has more memory on it than the MPC that that I was using, yeah. you know. And you had to use uh, jazz drives. Yeah. You know, and you'd have to change the jazz drive halfway through the gig because there wasn't enough memory. You know, which all this stuff seems crazy now. And the fact that the D drum three unit, I I had no idea how to do it. But uh, the drum tech that I was using at the time, I think it was Girls Aloud. He had to convert them to a MIDI file to be able to put them in. I mean, all of this stuff it seems bonkers. And actually. It's probably why a lot of drummers went, I can't be bothered with it. Yeah. You know, but I still loved it. It still excited me more than anything else. Just the sounds, the, the, the things that, 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 that were possible. So, yeah, watching Mark do that class, that was it for me. I, I, I wanted to be a part of it. Can you remember what you, what you first got? I mean, what would, um, from, if my memory serves me right, you had a, a little Yamaha kit? Yes, I, I had a... What were the really early DT Express or a DT Explorer? No, DT Express. DT Express. Yeah. Or was it the Explorer? Uh, what one of those? Yeah. Um, yes. And at the time, well, I, I think one of the major uh, sticking points, which again is not really an issue with most setups now, but it's the fact that the sounds were just rubbish. Yeah. You know. You know. Once you got past a certain point in the sound library, it. <laughs> I remember. Uh, was it was it a drum cat uh, um, advert with Vinnie Colaiuta when he said some, something like it's not just bells and whistles? Hmm. Um, and unfortunately, once you get past a, a certain point on a lot of those sound libraries, it is just bells and whistles and sort of rubbish voice samples and helicopter sounds. This is my <laughs> biggest criticism of early electronics: is why the hell do you need a helicopter sound in your sound library? Exactly. Or a police siren, or, or you know, all it. So basically, it, it seemed like they they'd just taken the um, the sample library from from a Bon Tempe keyboard mm. and put it into their modules, which is basically and, what they'd done. That they'd done. They'd yeah. basically taken a keyboard, a basic keyboard library, and just bunged it into the drum module. Yeah. yeah. And so it was just so you know. I, I remember getting it, thinking, "Oh, this is going to be awesome," and actually becoming quite bored with it really quickly and and just going back to playing drums hmm. um so i sort of i uh, uh uh so from that i got the d drum three which was fantastic and then i got a couple of d drum fours mm -hmm. and i was quite an early adopter although there were uh, a few guys using them but quite an early adopter of doors pads yeah which i really liked because they were small yep. really small six inch pads and you could put them any, anywhere. So I got a bunch of those. I got a bunch of uh, Fat Cat pedals, which were great. Uh, for anyone that doesn't know what they are, they're sort of long, low-profile bass drum trigger. Well, and they do have the, the Hat Cat as well, which is for the, for the hi-hats. Um, but, but they're just brilliant for being able to place around the kit. But anyway, I got all this stuff, and I used it a, a little bit with the DT Express. Got bored because the sounds were rubbish. And then they just sat gathering dust in my lockup for a few years. 
until such time as I had to use them. And I think that's that's quite a good thing to think about. You know, have a reason for using the stuff rather than just, just spending money. It's really easy, as I have done uh, a couple of times in the past, to sort of spend the money and buy the best thing available. But I think until you need it, don't do it. Have a reason to use it. So when you said you had to use it, who was that with? What artist was that with? Was that the Girls Aloud thing? No. So the first the first time I started using uh, the D-drum again was with Lucy Silvers. Oh, right. So although her first album was not particularly heavily, heavily synthetic in its sound, you know, it had quite an ostensibly real uh, drum sound. It was, I think I'm, I think I'm right. It was like 98% programmed, mm. but you know, using the, the early drum sample libraries and, and, and stuff. Um, so there, there were a few sounds on there that I wanted to recreate a few sort of percussion things. And at the time it was quite commonplace, quite trendy, I suppose, to sample acrostic. Yeah rather than playing a live acrostic. So for some of the ballads, um, I would be uh, triggering the the acrostic the, the there. So that was when I sort of got into the idea of uh, taking sounds from stems, from, from the record itself. And so that was sort of, that was sort of a little bit, um, she's got a bit more or- organic towards the end of my first tenure with her. Um, but Girls Aloud, really, that was... So 2006, that was when it was quite obvious that it would be a, a, a requirement. Yeah. So that, that, that was when I had uh, Fat Cat Pedals and I was, I was going be- between the two. So some songs, um, some songs would be real bass drum, some songs would be uh, triggered bass drum, some songs would have, you know, that was my sort of first foray into a chorus might be on the real kick drum, but the but the verse might be on the fat cat. But I, I was using I used the same setup for both there. So that was uh, the D drum uh, D drum four. I think I went to, uh, and I had two D drum fours in my rack. I had four doors pads to my left, and and one fat cat pedal. Well, it was sort of the, the the genesis of the rig that I have now. If my memory serves correct, didn't you also have a drum cat at the starter girls allowed? Yes, I did have a drum cat. Yes, I did. Or was was that Lucy? I'd probably have to look at some photos. If you want to see Tom um, using this rig, then look at the Greatest Hits DVD from Wembley. Yeah, the girls' loud one because there's some good footage of you on that. Yes, yes, yeah, that was God, that was a long, a long, a long time ago now. But no, that that was that was that was great gig, great gig. Um, yes, no, so yeah, the the drum cat. Yes, um, I mean. I sort of I've dabbled with the drum cat. The mm. drum cat is so good. The drum cat that I got the turbo. Yeah. I mean, well, it's probably quite quite relevant now actually, but you could definitely start World War Three with that thing. <laughs> the uh, the the technology that is in it, I, I haven't even scratched this. I mean, I, I, there's no way that that I've, I've even peeled the first layer of of what it's capable of. But the wonderful thing about the drum cat, and in fact. It's something that you know. I know we've we've talked about before, but it's it's interesting how technology has progressed to a point beyond what it what is actually necessary. So for what I do, FSR technology, um, which 
you can explain i'm sure okay so yeah fsr if you if you need to find out more information about this listen to the podcast about different sorts of pads because we talk about that there um but basically it's a flat piece of plastic and that is what makes the uh, drum cat work the fsr technology is incredible if i'm using easy drummer or superior drummer which is actually what i use more and i'm playing a song for example the drum cat is incredible because you can play as if you're playing a drum set and it responds to every nuance, every dynamic. It's brilliant. Mm. But when I'm on stage, it's absolutely not what I want. Mm. So the doors pads were super quick, super, super um, responsive, brilliant pads. But actually, they gave me too much. I, I, I didn't need any of that stuff. If I'm just playing single shot samples and I'm playing a, a dance track, I need consistency. So all of the dynamics are up to 127. Um, uh, I started off with a little bit of headroom, but I, actually over the last few years, uh, it's just, you know, they're all up to 127, 127, 127. It's on or off, basically. I- exactly, because yeah. dance music doesn't need that sort of di- dynamic. There have been uh, what what I have now is um, uh, a pad that actually isn't just on or off, and that one is dedicated to those little phrases that I may have to play. Those, those little sort of you know dance oriented. You can probably hear it snare drum phrases, and if it's on or off, then I have to play like a caveman, and that's yeah. not good. So there is one pad with a little bit of headroom and a little bit of. Di- dynamic and a little bit more sensitivity um, but for the most part my pads are now dynamicless so i actually the the, the fsr in that instance is completely ir- irrelevant and if i'm really honest i i don't think i could play i've done a few clinics on the cat because it's just easier to take the cat but in terms of precision i couldn't be on the stages that i'm on with the distractions that are going on sometimes in the dark sometimes not sometimes there's lights flashing in, in, in my eyes and have to focus on a tiny little bit of the drum cat surface it, it, it just wouldn't work for me especially as because the drum cat's got 10 pads on the top surface if you are two centimeters off you might be triggering a bass drum rather than a snare drum you need to be so hyper accurate 100 percent, which is another reason that i i don't use um the you know the the multi pads. I have a multi pad as a patch changer, um, but I just I could not with the sheer amount of samples that I use on quite a lot of the songs with Kylie. Um, there's no way that I could use a multi pad because I'd just be firing off the wrong sound all the time. I know I would, you know. So you know I just sort of think about it as just more they're just individual drums that's all i just have more more drums around my kit but i use pole pads which are brilliant um because again it's about the footprint um so i think on the last tour uh i used all of the channels available to me at the back of of, of the dtx and but but my my footprint still isn't that big but it's because i use the, the pole pads, which, you know, can be stereo um, pads or a single mono pad. But, you know, I'm just able to get those into small spaces. So you need the right pad for the job. Exactly. 
um, presumably, you know, from what we've just heard, a product which works really well on the stage or in the studio isn't necessarily going to work in the other situation. Exactly. The one time you were using a multipad uh, with Duffy, so go leaping forward quite a few years. So, so I mean, with that, can you just tell us what what was happening there? Okay, so Duffy from the very beginning was completely acoustic. Mm-hmm. Um, I was I was uh, to all intents and purposes a sort of you know, 60s Motown stacks drummer. That's all I was. Um, Duffy sort of, I don't know, maybe towards the end of the first cycle, she became quite focused on making the record sound like the live show, the live show sound like the record. Um, So we discussed ways of doing it. Um, Up until that point, I'd been changing snare drums uh, uh very deeply in my steve jordan phase so you know every song had a different snare drum to it basically well i should point out here hang on that this is you're talking acoustic snare drums aren't you you're not talking electronic samples you are talking uh, the fact that off the side of the drum riser there was yeah. seven or eight different snares yeah. and your tech would hand you a new snare at the end of each song every song yeah and they and and they were attached to the snare drum stand mm. so he was he was handing to me a whole, you know, snare drum stand and snare drum, um, which just when I think about it now, there's no way that I could do it now. Segways, things like, you know, song segways. Uh, it's just Im- Im- impossible, completely Im- impossible. Anyway, so she, we were sort of talking about ways of doing it. And there are um, lots of bands who I suppose it would be called sound reinforcement, yeah. maybe, um, rather than out and out triggering where where it's where it's a a blend so um the acoustic drum sound from the record is sampled and they'll have triggers on the bass drum triggers on the snare drum and it will either be blended or or not um but you're you will basically hear you're hearing the record yeah Um, but it's a live snare drum sound or it's a live bass drum sound it just has all of the eqs and effects that the record has. So we we did talk about that and the possibility of doing that. The MD wasn't keen on making life more complex than it had to be. Um, So it didn't actually happen. So what we did was um, I got one of the original uh, Roland SPDSs um, and just put a few key things. There was a song that she wrote... Uh, again, towards the end, called Rain on My Parade, which had a very specific sort of 808 uh, bass drum um, and claps. And um, she got really into Questlove at that point. So, you know, it, it was it was those kind of sounds. Ironically, Questlove doesn't trigger. Um, but that was, it, it was minimal, but, but that was the start of uh, sort of seeing an SPDS or a multipad to the left of pretty much everyone's drum kit from yes. that, that moment on, you know. Yeah. Everyone um, was doing it. Yeah, I don't really see a drum kit now without some sort of multi-pad. No. Uh, I think the trend now is in the middle uh, between the rack tom and the floor tom. Exactly, yes. I don't understand how that is practical. I really don't. You know, the reason why my rig is set up the way it is is because everything is in its place in order for me to play what i need to play i don't understand how a multi-pad if you're playing snare drums and bass drums 
how is it being in the middle useful? I think it's a different use. I don't think it's so much uh, triggering kicks and snares. I think it's more effects and uh, tracks and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, that's one thing we'll come back to when we talk about your kit with Kylie is, is one, the aesthetics of it, but two, the practicalities of it and how it's all set up. You're listening to the eDrumInfo.com podcast, making your experience with electronic drums that much easier. So Duffy, yes, had the the SPDS on the left-hand side, so just triggering a few bits. And then after that, the next thing was Kylie, is that right? The next big uh, thing? The next big thing was actually something not in this in this country. It was with a guy called Christoph Willem. Ah, yes. So... So Christoph was a gig that, without a doubt, was a feeder into Kylie. Yeah. Um, on 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 so many levels. Without Christoph, I mean, a it was a wonderful tour, and he's a, he's a, a great artist. But without Christoph, I wouldn't have been in the zone to do Kylie. Right. Can I just say, um, so Christoph Willem is a really big French artist mm-hmm. who has no nobody knows him outside France, do they? He's no, completely unknown. The Francophile countries, shall we say. Okay. So uh, France, Benelux, a little bit of Canada. But no, basically, unless you're in those zones, forget it. Yeah. But but a tour that was billed to me as six weeks, including two weeks re- rehearsals, um, actually went on for a year. He can tour all year round in those countries and not have to touch any other territories. And we're not talking little gigs either, are we? We're not no. talking 200-seaters. We're talking big stadiums and stuff like that. Arenas, festivals. I mean, he's a, he's a, he's a big artist who I, I had absolutely no idea about. You know, we, we rehearsed in this beautiful studio um, in one of the suburbs of Paris. He had uh, a chef. I mean, the stuff that I, I was eating, how I didn't come back with type 2 diabetes, I'm not. Uh, I, I have no idea. Absolutely extraordinary, extraordinary um, food. Uh, every day um but it was brilliant so basically that was i don't know i don't know what the right phrase was but without christoph there is no way that i could have so comfortably sat in with kylie yes Uh, that that was the start of what you see me play with now with kylie i use the same rig with uh leona Lewis, um, it's it's basically become just my drum kit mm. um, because it's not it's not ostentatious particularly. If if you sit behind it, there's a lot to take in, but it doesn't. It's not. I mean, I and Andy Gangadin is in many ways my hero, but his kit is such a statement. Mm. You know, the the, the Gangoscope. I remember seeing it Zildjian Day at the forum. Uh, I was there with a friend of mine. You know, so so you had, uh, who did you have at the time? I think it was John Ro- Robinson was on the bill. Oh, God. I mean, the the big American guns. Mm. And then you had this, this British bloke with long hair and a woolly hat playing dance music. You know, the, the burgeoning sort of drum and bass and all that kind of stuff. But this rig that was just extraordinary. And I think anybody who was there, it will stay in their mind forever. That was the debut of the Gangoscope. Yeah. But it's such a statement. It's such a statement. If you see that kit, you know it's Andy Gangadine. It sort of lends itself to certain things. Whereas the kit that I'm using, the way that it was designed, 
it's it's just a drum set really hmm. you know if you if you happen to have seen me play a couple of times and you see it you might go oh that's tom's drum kit hmm. but it's but it's not something that you know i've had people who don't play drums and don't have anything to do with drums go oh isn't that that bloke's drum kit you know it, because it's it's the gangoscope it, it's hmm. it's such a thing my rig is basically the drum set that i want to use kick drum rack tom floor tom snare drum with other stuff around it in order for me to be able to uh, trigger so with christoph and with kylie so it's basically the same thing there are songs where i'm playing four bass drums three snare drums two or three hi-hat samples um which sounds excessive and some people I, I i talk to say well does anyone notice the difference between a uh, a triggered hi-hat and a live hi-hat well you know what maybe not maybe not but who am i to dismiss the hard work that's gone on in the studio to create those sounds well i should uh, so when you're saying you're triggering four bass drums uh it's basically uh the intro might have one bass drum the verses might have a second the choruses might have a third and the bridge might have a fourth exactly. uh, yeah so um and this isn't done uh because you fancy it this is done because that is what was on the original track that's what's on the original track and that is what the md wants and that is what you are recreating that is what i i, I i'm regretting and, and in fact um uh kylie's arranger and nd steve anderson he makes fun of me sometimes because i'm really not a fan of blending to me my personal opinion is you're either doing one thing or you're doing another yeah um so we had this conversation when we did leona lewis together of you know having uh triggers on the snare drum and and bass drum and blending the two I, I i'm not a fan of that i personally think it, it of course there are examples where it works but to my mind i think it, it can get quite messy hmm. um i don't mind having sections that are electronic and sections that are acoustic but i don't really like blending the two in one that's just my personal op opinion so yeah with christoph and with Kylie, as you say, it could be um, kick drum for the intro, kick drum for the verse, kick drum for the chorus, uh, kick drum for the reintro. Um, I can have two snare drums in the verse, a snare drum for the chorus, and then another snare drum for the for the bridge. You know, I'm basically playing a bunch of different sounds. And also, the other thing to point out is you're not um you're not doing necessarily doing patch changes in the middle of songs in fact you don't do patch changes in the middle of songs do you no, so absolutely. this is why your rig has developed in the way it has so you've got uh i mean like on the okay let, let's get on to your kylie kit because we might as well now because that would be a good yeah. way of explaining it yeah. so you've got your kick your rack your floor tom your snare that's your core yeah that's my it yeah, if if you want to, you know, put a definition, that's my acoustic drum kit. That that is the drum kit that I would go out with if you asked me to come and play drums and nothing else. Yeah, and then on the kick you have a trigger. Yeah. Uh, on the toms you have triggers occasionally, yeah. but not always. Not always. Yeah, and then to the left of your hi hat, you've got a, a little trio of pads, haven't you? To my left, it's what I call the electronic cocktail kit. Yeah. Um. So I have an inverted triangle of seven inch uh yamaha pads just there just uh, again 
they sort of look at me weirdly when I ask them because they're the most bog standard bells and whistles free pads. They just they trigger a, a sound. So two on the top and one one in in the middle, as I say, creating a an inverted triangle. To the left of that, I have a TP one hundred. Yep. Um, so slightly less basic pad. Yeah. Um, and I'll explain why I have that in a second. Um, at the very top, um, I have a pole pad. So that's another two, uh, sample triggering sources. And then I have a kick drum trigger, a Yamaha. KP125. 125. Yeah. yeah. There. And to the right of that, I have a fat cat pedal. Yes. Basically on that electronic, uh, uh cocktail kit, I have one, two, five, seven, uh, well, like 11 possible sound sources. Yeah. So the, the TP100 pad, that's what I use if I'm doing real-time filtering. Yes. That, that has the, 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 the function dial on it, um, and there are two or three songs in this current Kylie set, but over the last couple of years, a few years, maybe there's been five or six songs that have required me to do that classic, uh, you know, low pass uh, filter thing, which is brilliant to be able to do myself, even though nobody else has any clue. All they see me doing is put one stick under my armpit and hold on to a pad. They have no idea what I'm doing. They think I'm just having a little tea break, but I love it. Right. So just to explain, you've got the TP100, which is a silicon head pad. Yes. And it's got the controller wheel on it. Uh, yeah. a control wheel and uh when uh, because all your pads are going into the dtx 900 module yes mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so yeah. you've got it set up so that when you turn the knob on that one pad the whole kit filters down so it does that classic dance thing well yeah what's brilliant is that sometimes i've i've used the that that for for one sound one pad mm. it's controlling one pad yeah but the joy is that i can control all of the pads mm. as well which uh, so on on uh, spinning around i have the electronic cocktail kit split into two so one side is just normal open sounds and the other side starts it's been saved down filtered right down so what i'm doing as i'm playing the second verse i'm opening up the filter and like i say it, it's for nobody else's joy but mine and i'm in control of how that filter, you know, is it is it a particularly quick filter tonight? Is it a slower filter? To, you know, it's it's entirely up to me. But nobody has any idea apart from me and the MD who loves it every, every time. I see no. I I, I don't want to judge anybody else's choices, but and I know we have talked about this before. I see so many complicated rigs around with laptops and MIDI chains and all kinds of stuff. What I love about the rig that I have is that it is so simple. Mm. And I have two DTX 900 modules. Don't think I've ever turned on the second module. Mm. Really. You know, it it just works. It's like the cat. And I sort of worry uh, talking about this because I've always found the things that just work are the things that get discontinued. (laughs) (laughs) Because the things that just work that don't have the built-in obsolescence that some things have, they don't make money for the people that make them. So they need to make something that is more uh, consumer-led rather than pro. Um, That's why the the DJ3 went out the window, because they were bulletproof. Hmm. 
they just didn't break and they worked and everything was on the front. It was really accessible and, and, and easy because although it may sound like I love electronics and I know what I'm talking about, I'm a Luddite in so many ways. You know, I need things explained to me and I need to really understand the core of what's going on. It, this stuff doesn't necessarily, drumming comes easily to me and the love, the, the passion of electronics and playing electronic music comes easily to me. But the actual opening up a, a machine and understanding what's going on, I've got no idea. Mm. Absolutely no idea whatsoever. I've learned. I've learned a lot. And I know far more now, you know, um, the days of having to be on the phone every five minutes, they are gone. But, you know, that, that hasn't been an, an easy journey for me. It's it's been a it's been trial and error and using up an awful lot of goodwill and favors. So yeah, I, I just don't understand why why people make things more complicated for themselves um by using machines that don't give them everything that they need. But you know, the nine hundreds, they just they've lasted me nearly ten years. Not quite, but nearly ten years. Um I think I started off with a DT DT Extreme 3. DT Extreme 3, and then I moved up to, to the 900s. But basically, same thing, same same bodies. They just they just don't break. But I, I can I can put sounds into the back of the 900. You know what? Why why aren't all modules like that? Why why can you not put your own sounds into every single module in the world? Hmm. It's ridiculous. Why are people having to use things like Mainstage and all that kind of stuff to connect to their module. Why are drummers putting up with it? That's actually that's actually the bigger question. Why are consumers uh, and or whatever you want to call them, professional drummers, why are we not saying this is ridiculous? Because frankly, we're at a point where MMDs and artists obviously want the sounds from the record. So why are we not making it easier for ourselves? I, t- I totally, totally agree, one hundred percent. I mean, I think the, the the times are are changing. I think we might have actually sort of reached a zenith as far as electronics and everything else is concerned. I, I, at the moment, we're on a slightly more return to acoustic thing, aren't we? Yeah, I think. Well, uh, look, it's like ev- everything. Whatever trade show you go to now, people are basically reinventing the wheel. Yes, because a drum is a drum is a drum is a drum a pedal is a pedal is a pedal so yeah i think you're right in in terms of what electronics can do there's n- I, I don't know i i could be wrong here but i feel like there's not a massive amount of headroom hmm. um you know left so yeah people are sort of people are going back to retro sounds yeah. people are going back to uh you know hey wasn't the simmons great well no it felt like you were hitting a tabletop one of the first sessions i ever did was on a simmons kit and you know, brilliant, and and everything, but it was horrible. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, it's 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 not it's it's rose tinted glasses and all that. But I remember seeing uh, re- reading an interview with a great drummer, uh, someone who basically did exactly the same as as me with a different art artist. And I looked at the rig that he was using, and it was to do the same job as me, in the same way as me. But it was the most convoluted because of the gear, because of the brain. So, you know, the brain, to, to mix my body parts here, the brain is, is, is the heart of any operation. 
And because that brain wouldn't accept sounds, he had to make it all the more complex. I just, it's bonkers. I know exactly which artist you're talking about, and I know exactly which drummer, because I remember sitting down and looking at modern drummer with you about that. Uh, yes. Exactly. It's, but whenever I see a laptop on, on stage, my heart is in my mouth. But, you know, uh, I did a gig just two weeks ago now um, that they, they were using uh, QLab to run the tracks, and one of the laptops went down. You know, it, it, it blows my mind. When I see a laptop on stage, I'm worried. Yeah. You know, uh, when I see sort of black boxes, like the hard disk, I feel a lot happier. Mm. I mean, just uh, while we're on the subject of the downside of electronics and stuff like that, mm-hmm. have, have you ever had any massive problems? Or has it been pretty much... Um, I've, huh, I've had three problems, all of which were nothing inherently to do with sort of um oh well that's what you get for using technology yeah one uh i remember on uh, one of the australian uh, legs with kylie i somehow managed to swap um my profile my my trigger profiles right i've no idea how i did it i genuinely don't know how i did it but mid-set Ooh. So all the responses were completely different. And I was freaking out to the point that I had to say uh, down, down the talk back to the MD and, and Kylie, we have to stop for a minute. Just talk and I'm, and I'm going to restart. Now, I, I know in, in retrospect that's what happened because as I was turning the machine off, I realized that's what I'd done. But at the time, I was just, what is happening? This is bonkers. Um, so I, I had to turn, you know, turn off and turn on again and it, and, and it was fine. But so I'd, I'd managed to change the profile, um, which is, uh, crazy. Um, another one. So I often, I, I turn around or switch around between the sort of facing front in a very traditional way. Yeah. Um, and playing the pads on my left, or if I'm just playing the cocktail kit, I'll spin around and just play the cocktail kit. And uh, normally I, I have a very sort of um, uh, habitual song finishes and I immediately go to the, to the multi-pad and change the patch. The monitor engineer uh, was talking in, in my ear as I was flipping around to the uh, cocktail kit. I forgot to change the patch. And the big, the big crash, this is what's spinning around, actually, the big, you know, here we go and here's beat one. And because I hadn't changed the patch, there was nothing on on the kick drum, so oh, it just no. it was just the most pathetic, pathetic <laughs> sounding intro of all time. But anyway, that, that 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 was fine. But actually, the worst experience I've ever had was on uh, uh, was on a Kylie Kylie show, but it was it was a day of promo with Kylie, and we had um, a Maida Vale session in the morning. And then we had a gig in the evening, both for the Kiss Me Once uh, things. And I'd just received some new pads. Not, I hasten to add, Yamaha pads. I decided to get some white pads to go with the white aesthetic, clean aesthetic of, of, of the kit and the, and the look of the, um, of the campaign. So, yeah, so I got six new pads, white, beautiful looking, beautiful looking pads. I had the Vedavale show in the morning and two popped. They just popped open, springs, everything, 
Good night. So that left me with four. Um, by the end of the show in the evening, so about 11.30 that night, I had gone through every single pad. And I've never spoken to Nikki, my drum tech, so much during a gig. Because to be honest, the gear that I have, the gear that I've bought, the gear that I've been advised to buy, it is the best. It doesn't break. These pads, which I had decided would be a good idea, you know, let's go, let's go fancy, let's get the whole thing. Uh, they had all bust. And it's so frustrating because when you have to stop a show and it's not your fault, mm. you haven't forgotten how the song goes. You uh, haven't fallen off your chair. You know, when it's something that is out of your hands, that is what is so frustrating. Um, and I think, you know, the only downside to technology is is those kinds of things, really. Mm. Th those kind of glitches where you go, I've got no idea why that happened. Mm. Um, but, well, I have an idea why that happened with those pads because they just, they weren't particularly, maybe I've got a duff batch, who knows. Um, but, you know, th the reason why I've stuck with things that in some ways are maybe unfashionable or, you know, just not, not with the zeitgeist is because they just work. And all that counts is that nobody knows what I'm doing. I know, I know that sounds like a really weird thing, but I don't want somebody to come up to me after a show and say, Oh, you know, that thing you did, that was amazing. Hmm. Uh, because that means that I've, I've stuck out, I've stuck out of the sonic landscape and that's not my job. The reason why I'm playing all of these electronic uh, parts in the first place is in order to blend, not to pop out. It's the whole Steve Gadd thing about um, if you notice the drummer, they're not doing a good job. Exactly, exactly. And that influences my choices in terms of the acoustic drums too. The hi-hats that I play, um, they're dark. They're, they're not in any way what you would think, what, what some cymbal manufacturers would like you to think in inverted commas, electronic sounding symbols are. Or a pop gig. You know, you're doing pop gigs and you would think pop gigs are going to be, you know, tight, bright hi-hats. And there you are with occasionally 16-inch, really dark, dirty hi-hats. Because they, because they sit and, and they blend. And actually, um, if, if, I would, if I could critique or I could offer any advice to anybody getting into um, that world, whether it's as heavy as something like Massive Attack, or whether it's just your sort of classic pop gig with a few sounds on it. Um, remember, you are creating something that is A, telling a story, B, taking people on that journey, and C, if it's done really well, you are hypnotizing people sonically, right? And I remember seeing a gig, a great gig, um, and the drummer, beautiful uh, recreation of uh, electronic parts. And then every now and again, he'd play a drum fill on acoustic toms. And that's one thing. But the other thing is the sizes and the sounds of the, electro of the acoustic drums were just completely the polar opposite of the mood that he had set for 64 bars prior to that. And the spell was broken. And 
it took me another verse to get back into what he'd set up. And, you know, whether it sort of speaks to why I don't enjoy, you know, the sort of mishmash concept of, you know, sometimes we'll play electronic, sometimes we'll play acoustic. I don't know, maybe that that's part of it. But I just think you've got to be so conscious of what you're creating, the the, the sonic landscape that you're creating. Uh, so the drums that, that I, I play are generally bigger drums, although they're smaller than they have been for a long time. But for a long time, I used 24, 13 or 14 inch rack tom and 16 inch floor tom just because, I don't know, I haven't heard an eight inch rack tom on a record for a very long time. So, you know, if I'm if I'm playing something that is applicable, current, sonically viable, it's really not going to be an eight inch tom. But I don't want to be that controversial guy that sort of, you know, says you shouldn't ever use an eight inch tom because frankly, uh, you know, uh, there are no rules. But I think you have to know the rules to break the rules. Yeah. You know, as uh, I think it was Branford Marsala said, there's no freedom in freedom. So you have to understand what you're doing before you start to mess with it, basically. So where do you think, I mean, where do you see electronics going? Where do you see it being in 10 years' time? What, what's, what's next, do you think? Or what would you like to be next? Or are you happy with your, what you have? I have to say, uh, in terms of what I need, I'm really happy with it. I would like to see less gimmicky uh, things available for everybody but I know that that's not necessarily uh, viable in this current financial climate but you know if manufacturers really want to see uh, what is possible creatively and musically they need to make things available to everybody yeah um, you know the the fact is um, digital audio workstations have become so accessible, anybody can make a record. Now, I know that has its own pros and cons, but, you know, the stuff that's available to just a, a person and their laptop is e extraordinary. And I think if, if we really want to see what is possible um, in terms of pushing the envelope for for drummers and electronics, we need to make it we need to make it available to people. Mm. Um, I we've talked about drum cats. I love the drum cat, uh, but it's super expensive. You know, I mean, it's an investment. It will last you forever. You'll you'll probably unless you do something ridiculous, you'll have it forever. Mm. Um, but it's not an insignificant amount of money. Um, to buy a drum brain, a top of the range drum brain from any of the manufacturers without it being part of a kit is super expensive. So uh, yeah, I, I would just like to see it taken a little bit more seriously in terms of it being an instrument, being a tool, being something that is a creative possibility in essence. But in terms of wh where I see it going, everything is cyclical, isn't it? I mean, someone like someone like Kylie, they'll always need the kind of kit that I play. Will the next person that I play with need it? Depends entirely on what the current trend of the music industry is. You've just finished a tour where you were using no electronics. 
exactly exactly with another artist so yeah yeah, yeah. and as as happy as i am that i've been typecast maybe a few times in in terms of what i do as a musician i i'm sort of i'm 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 happy to be whatever anyone wants me to be bottom line is i just play the drums so um when i'm playing um all of these parts it's not that the parts are particularly complex it's just um having the having the geographical mindset you know in terms of where the pads are and where the sounds are and just remembering that that's all it is I, uh, uh, the bottom line is i just play drums and i use whatever medium it takes in order to get that job done you're listening to the edruminfo.com podcast making your experience with electronic drums that much easier subscribe to edruminfo.com